Father, as we come this morning, we give you our thanks. We praise you for the many blessings that you've poured out into our lives. We take a moment right now to name them and number them. We give you thanks for the days that you have given us, for the life that you have breathed into us. And likewise, we give thanks for the new life made available to us through your Son, through his incarnation, coming down from heaven and becoming a human, uniting us with you. We thank you for Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection. We thank you for the spirit that has been poured out into the life of the community of those who believe in you and follow you. We pray that your spirit would move in us this morning, that as your son in the Gospels kicked things up and changed things around, that our souls would be transformed, our hearts and minds would be made new to know and enjoy the life that you have come to give us. Be with us this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up with me to John chapter 2. John 2 is where we will be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're more than welcome to grab one of the black hardbacks underneath a seat around you and open up with us to John chapter 2. We are starting a new sermon series this morning called Seven Signs, and we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John for the next seven weeks. It's going to take us all the way up to Easter Sunday. Easter this year falls on April Fool's Day, so get ready for lots of lame jokes. Pastors are already working on them um, everywhere. Uh, The first 12 chapters of the book of John are sometimes called the book of signs because John structures them in in terms of seven signs. And, And signs in the Gospel of John is his word for miracles. Whereas in the synoptic Gospels, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those authors would talk about miracles or works of power when Jesus did something uh, supernatural. And John, we're told that they are signs. John tells us why he gives us these seven signs at the end of his gospel. In John 20, I'll read it for you. Verse 30 to 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, so more than just these seven, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John has just told you why he's giving you these seven signs. So that you would believe, you would trust in Jesus, who's God's Messiah, God's King, God's Son. And that in that belief, in that trust, you would find life, life eternal. Seven signs is not a lot. Jesus had a very active ministry. When you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get multiple, multiple, multiple accounts of these works of power, these miracles that Jesus performs. When John gives us seven signs, we're on notice. We can safely assume that John picks these signs on purpose. That he, he, he kind of takes away the rest of the clutter of what happens during Jesus' ministry and says, I'm going to lay out before you seven important pointers. That's what signs are. They're, they're, they're something that signifies something deeper, something more real. They point away from themselves. And these seven signs in John's gospel, they reveal the identity and the character of what Jesus has come to do. 
So our first sign this morning is found in John chapter 2. It's the water into wine miracle, if, if you're familiar with this. We read in verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. A true tragedy. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. That's why our, our scripture reading was about um, the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is revealed in all of his glory to his, his innermost circle of disciples. And the Father says, This is my son. Listen to him. Mary echoes that statement by the Father. Do whatever he tells you to do, she says. Let's listen to the mother of Jesus. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill up the jars with water. And they filled them all the way up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, or more literally, when the people are drunk, this is what it says literally in the, in the Greek, then they give the poor wine. This, we're told, is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, his beauty, and his disciples believed in him. I was listening to a uh, Baptist preacher uh, about the, the water and wine a few days ago, and, and he kept accidentally saying, Jesus turned the water into juice, and would have to like correct himself over and over and over again. I was like, just relax, man. It's alcohol, okay? We'll be all right. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. I mean, there's so many interesting things um, that we can explore because of this. The first thing that, that we should really let hit us is just the oddity of it, the surprising nature of this. Jesus' first miracle, his, his coming out party at this wedding party was to make sure that the buzz continued. If you're counting, Jesus makes about 150 gallons of wine a lot of a lot of good drink if you were to to measure the value of miracles based on what would happen if they had not occurred right the leper if they're not healed they're going to continue to be outcast from society the the dead person lazarus if he's not raised from the dead he's going to continue on in death well this miracle if the water's not turned into wine people will sober up That's what's at stake here in this first miracle. Yet John thinks this is the perfect place to begin. If we want to know why Jesus is here, who he is, and what he's about. So this this takes place in Cana of Galilee. I want to try to draw you into the story. Immerse yourself in this kind of narrative, okay? You've been to weddings before. Some of you have, have drank wine or strong drink before, so I'm told. Imagine you're at this wedding. Cana is not too far from Nazareth, just a few miles. So Jesus is there. 
He's invited to this, this wedding. The first thing that pops out to us is, is the, the first phrase in verse 1, on the third day, the setting for this wedding in Cana is on the third day. Now, the third day was when Jewish people had their weddings. Sunday's the first day, Monday's the second day, Tuesday's the third day. Tuesdays are wedding days for the Jewish people. The reason way back when traditionally um, Jewish people we're looking at the creation story, and they notice that on the third day of creation, God says it is good about creation twice. And so they said, what a great day to have a wedding on the sacred third day of creation. And so they're here for a wedding. The third day, though, also echoes something even more important for people who follow Jesus. John writing this story, people hearing the story for the first time, people reading the story throughout history, What comes to mind when we hear on the third day? Yeah, resurrection. John knows this. John is is situating this story in an echo chamber of resurrection. He wants you to connect what happens here in Cana with the resurrection of Jesus. On the third day, they're at this wedding. It's perhaps noteworthy that Jesus is the kind of person that gets invited to weddings. Sometimes we over-spiritualize Jesus. But somehow or another, he got onto this, this list of people to, to be invited. He's there with his friends and his family. His mother's there. Joseph's not there. We mostly believe that Joseph is dead. Mary is a widow. Jesus is the son of a widow. And they're at this, this wedding with their friends and their family. He only has six disciples at this point. So Jesus has really just started to pick up steam with his ministry He's got Andrew, he's got James, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Nathaniel actually joined the day before the wedding, just in time for the wine. And Nathaniel, we're told, um, was, was looking for signs. And Jesus, right before chapter 2, says, Truly I say to you, you'll see heaven open up. The angels of God will ascend and descend on the Son of Man. The wedding in Cana is our first glimpse of the heavens opening up of God's activity occurring in and through Jesus. Now, Jewish weddings are similar and dissimilar to our weddings. At our weddings, we usually have a ceremony and a reception. Um, Usually the ceremony is a little bit quicker. The reception is kind of the party atmosphere. Um, Jewish weddings were similar. They had a ceremony. There would have been vows. There would have been a a reception, a feast of sorts, except in, in ancient Jewish weddings, it was a little bit bigger of a deal. It was kind of involved the whole community. It was a big kind of parade type situation. The feast would not last for the night. It would last for days, which is why perhaps running out of wine would actually be somewhat of a social disaster in the first century. In an honor-shame culture, this might be the type of story that lingers in your family for generations. They ran out of, of wine. Jewish weddings like ours, between the the ceremony and the reception, the party, the feast, the festival, the bride and the groom disappear. Now, for our weddings, the bride and groom disappear to go take pictures, right? Family stays behind, they take pictures. Not so for ancient Jewish weddings. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but, but in an ancient Jewish wedding, there would be a tent set up somewhere not too far away from the ceremony and and where the feast would be held. And and between the ceremony, after they take their vows, the bride and the groom would go into the tent and they would do married things. They would consummate their marriage. They would become married. In the scriptures, 
marriage is less the the thing that allows you to have sex with somebody else and sex is more the thing that makes you married to somebody else that's more the logic that's why um in in the scriptures um this faithfulness to one person seems so strong because it's in this act of consummation that you are connected you are united with another person so man and woman would consummate and then they would come out of the tent i don't know blushing proud who knows and then the feast would begin there's this, this catastrophe. Mary notices this. You can imagine her standing with Jesus and kind of nudging him with her elbow and saying, hey, the, the wine's running out. She doesn't really ask for anything. She doesn't instruct Jesus to do anything. She just makes an observation. Jesus responds with kind of a cryptic answer. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, this sounds a little bit rude and crude. Um, in the First century, the term Jesus is using here for woman is a polite term. It is not um, as degrading as perhaps we could read it in a certain tone. Um, Mary appears twice in John's gospel. The second time is at the foot of the cross. There as well, Jesus calls her woman. And it's definitely not a crude remark at that point when he passes on his care of his mother to his disciple, John. He says, what does this have to do with me? It's not our problem. I mean, yeah, it's a bummer. We don't have any more wine. And he says, my hour has not yet come. The time for me to to work has not yet come. But it's coming soon, apparently. Mary seems to have some intuition. So she goes and tells the servants, hey, just do whatever he wants to do. And so Jesus, at some point later, sees these six stone jars. They're these large kind of bathing pools for um, these ritual Jewish purification acts. You could wash your hands. You could, you could bathe. It would, it would make you ceremonially, ceremonially pure, clean, so you could participate in certain worship acts. And Jesus tells the servants, you see these, these big stone jars? Hey, go fill them up with water. Now, this is a lot of water, 150 gallons of water. You you have to think this takes some time. They don't have a hose they can just pull out and start pouring it in there. You have to wonder what the servants are thinking. Why are we doing this? Please tell me this is not some super religious guy who's going to try to make us all start bathing and, and getting ritually pure to continue this feast. And they fill it up to the brim, and Jesus says, hey, go get, a, go get a wine glass. Come back, take some water from one of these jars in your wine glass, and then go and show it to the master of the festivities, the chief uh, of the party. And somewhere along the way, by the time it gets to the master of the ceremonies, it's wine. Not just any wine, good wine. It's not the box stuff. I'll be bold enough to say I don't think Jesus turned the water into Moscato. Imagine as a deeper red. What's interesting about this miracle is not a lot of people are in on it. The master of the ceremonies doesn't know what's happened. All he knows is someone has brought him some wine and he's confused. We've got this huge supply of wine now. 
And it's good. He calls the, the bridegroom over. The groom comes, and maybe or maybe not, he's heard rumors that the wine is running out, and he gets there, and the master of the ceremonies goes, look at this. Wow, you've outdone yourself. Usually people give the good wine first, and then people's taste buds start to disappear. They bring out the box stuff. This is what you've given the good stuff. And we're told that this is Jesus' first sign. This is a beautiful story. It's kind of an enchanted story. There's this kind of whimsical air about it. Like we, we said, a lot of miracles are much more serious. They're life or death. There's a leper that needs to be healed. There's a girl about to die. There's a man who has died. There are people who are without food. There are people stuck in a storm. This one, though, seems a little lighthearted. The miracle here is to keep the wedding party well stocked with wine. But John says it's a sign. It's not just a party trick, though it would be a good one. It's a sign of something deeper. So what does it point to? Now, John is an artist, a theological artist. His gospel is rich with symbolism and metaphor, and it's the kind of gospel that tells the kind of stories with the kind of language where you can look at it eight or nine or ten different ways and just see metaphors and symbols building upon each other. He creates this kind of beautiful tapestry, almost like a, 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 a treasure trove for you to dig in. And, and this is true of the water into wine story as it is any other story. Let me point out two things this morning that I think this sign is pointing us to. The first one has to do with this wine, this alcohol. I think this story is a way of Jesus announcing that the time of good wine is here. That before I was, before my ministry, we were lacking in good wine. But the time has come for it to arrive and for the feast to start and continue. In the Old Testament, there's an abundance of uses of the symbol of wine. Um, Wine is a symbol for God's favor and God's blessing. Wine is a gift given to human beings so they can experience the joy that God has built into creation. It's drunkenness that the scriptures are against, not drinking. Likewise, an absence of wine or the, the ruin of vineyards was often a symbol of the absence of God's presence or God's judgment upon a people. And the prophets of old, as they imagined a time when God would come and save his people, would transform creation, they tapped into this this imagery of the wine. And they spoke in ways that the day that the Lord will visit us, when he arrives, wine will flow. Not the cheap stuff, the good stuff. And this will be a sign, this will be a pointer, this will be a characteristic of this beautiful, joyous new creation. Flip with me, if you will, to Isaiah 25. I want to show you a a beautiful passage in Isaiah 25. I want to let you hear the echoes of Isaiah 25 in the story in John chapter 2. We get here a, a place where the symbolism is used. The prophet says when God comes, when his Messiah shows up, when his righteousness fills the earth and the kingdom is here as it is in heaven, wine will flow. Let's pick it up in 
Well, let's just read from the beginning. 25.1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. It's like heat in a dry place. But you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. Now pay attention as we pick up in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. Now, what is this darkness that's been covering all the peoples? We find out in verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. On that day when God comes, death will be swallowed up, a feast will be prepared, and it will have the richest, most beautiful, most satisfying food that you've ever tasted. And it'll have the, the best, most tasteful, most joyful wine that your lips have ever touched, that your nose has ever smelled. God will swallow up death. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. At Cana in Galilee, when Jesus turns the water into wine, John is saying, let it be said on this day, this is our God. We've waited for him, that he would come and save us. This is our Lord. Be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Death is being swallowed up in the person of Jesus. God is visiting his creation to transform what has gone wrong with it. And as a symbol, as a sign, as a guarantee of this work, a feast is being prepared. Jesus turns water into wine as a way of almost poetically illustrating God's kingdom is arriving. The time is here to drink. To enjoy. If we flip back to John chapter 2, I'll point out to you that this, this imagery is used all over the place in Joel 4 8. On that day, the mountain will drip with sweet wine, hills will flow with milk, all the streams will flow with water. In Amos 9 13, the days are coming when the plowman will overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows a seed, and again, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. What a picture that is. The mountains dripping, literally just dripping with sweet, sweet wine. Wine. Jesus is announcing that the reign of God has come. The chief of festivities, the master of the party, he remarks, you've kept the best wine until now. And John, I think, is trying to, in an artistic and poetic way, illustrate that Jesus is, in a sense, the bridegroom of God's day of salvation. That Jesus is the best wine. That God has kept the best wine till now. We can say it like this. In previous days, God's people and God's creation have had some wine. 
and they've had some good wine. When Moses was around and, and, and the people of God were led out of slavery into the promised land, that was some good wine. And in the days of David, when the kingdom was sure and the land was expanding and the people were secure, that was some good wine. But then there was the drought. There was this exile. One might say for 500 years or so before Jesus, the vineyards had withered. The wine had run out like it had run out at this wedding. But now with Jesus on the scene, not only is there wine, but it's the best wine. John's saying, look, we had some good times with Moses. We had some good times with David, but the best has been saved for now. And the people at this wedding get to participate in it. And you and I get to participate in it. He's echoing what he says in John 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Moses brought the law. David brought the poems. Jesus has brought in grace and truth. Jesus has brought in the revelation of who God is. And he turns his water into wine. When Jesus is on the scene, good things are about to happen. Now, I want to ask you a question and let you zero in on this aspect of the story. Why was Jesus at the wedding? Because he was invited. He was invited. Water is turned into wine when the wine runs out at this wedding. This catastrophe occurs. You and I, I'm guessing, have things in our lives, catastrophes, tragedies, stresses, anxieties. we got things, right? Do you have things? I have things. In John 2, the scriptures are telling us to invite Jesus to our things. To invite him. Because when he is there, when he's present, when he's in the mix, water turns into wine. Now, we've got to be careful because sometimes when we take things into our own hands, we actually work backwards and we take wine and we start to turn it into water. But Jesus doesn't work that way. The water turns into wine and you invite him. And when you invite Jesus, it's best probably not to tell him what to do. To just make an observation, Jesus, this thing is happening. To look around at yourself in the mirror at people around you and say, let's do whatever he tells us to do. I'm guessing if, if, if Mary were to come up with a solution for the wine that she wouldn't have imagined this miracle happening. But, I mean, this would have not just been something that she could have conceived of on her own. This is often the case of how Jesus works in our lives, in creation, in surprising ways, in ways that surpass our imagination. We might think we know what we want Jesus to do in our life, in our thing. But perhaps upon reflection, we couldn't even imagine the kind of life and joy that Jesus wants to bring. The feast continues. When Jesus shows up, good things are about to happen. The second thing to notice about this story is that the table at this story is starting to surpass the temple. John goes out of his way to point out 
where this water was stored in, in jars that were for Jewish rites of purification. And there's an aspect to this story, a strong aspect, where this too is symbolic. Where instead of washing and washing and washing and never really being clean, now the kingdom of God is here. But instead of bathing, it's more about eating and drinking with friends that you are close with, that you belong with, where you are welcome. We might say that at this moment in time with Jesus, a seismic shift starts to happen in how God's people experience his redemptive power. And God's people are going from purity rites to table delights. We're going from cleansing and rituals and sacrifice at the temple And we're going to eating and drinking. We're going to a table. This is seen all the more clearly when you look at the story that comes after the wedding at Cana. John chapter 2 has two big stories. It has the the miracle that happens at the wedding, and then it has Jesus protesting the temple, shutting it down for a short amount of time. We, We use the term cleansing the temple. That kind of obscures what's really happening here. Jesus is just protesting what's happening He's trying to shut it down and get people's attention for a a moment in time. Watch this. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' protest at the temple happens during the last week of his life. It's one of the things that triggers his ultimate death. We're pretty sure this is the most accurate historical account of Jesus' life. Yet John pulls this out of order all the way up to the front. It's one of the first things Jesus does in John's gospel. I would contend that John here is less concerned about chronological order and more concerned about theological order. John pulls this out of that last week and puts it right smack dab behind the wedding so that you won't miss the point. Jesus is very ambiguous about the temple throughout his ministry, at best. At worst, he's very cynical about what it's become and the usefulness of what happens there. He prophesies over and over again that it will be destroyed. There will be no future use for it. At its best, at his best, when he's not really focusing on the problems, Jesus seems to think of the temple as a place of national and religious pride gone astray. He looks at the temple and he sees purification rituals. He sees animal sacrifice He sees carefully guarded borders and people who are separated. And he doesn't really like much of that. That's not really what Jesus is about throughout his ministry. And with the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of that comes to an end. This whole system of engaging with God crumbles. And and we often take for granted how big of a change that was. We come Christians from Judaism. This is our heritage as the people of God. A temple system a sacrificial system, a a purifying system, a system very carefully ordered. And all of that was pushed aside when Jesus came and replaced with a table. And the question in Jesus' kingdom is not, are you pure? Are you holy? Are you clean? It's, will you come to the table? Will you come eat? Will you come drink? I've got good food. I've got good wine. Jesus says, 
When he's protesting the temple, they ask for a sign. What gives you the authority to do this? He says, there will be a sign. You destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, look, we've been working on this for lots and lots and lots of time. There's no way you can rebuild this in three days. John makes a note. He says, hey, after he resurrected, we remembered this. And we realized he was talking about his body. The body of Christ would replace the temple system. The body of Christ, we might say, refers to, to three things. At the same time, to the literal body of Christ, dead and buried and now risen and living, to the Eucharist, to the table where Jesus beckons us with his body and his blood. And the body of Christ, of course, in the scriptures refers to the community of believers collectively making up the people who follow Jesus. And it's the table, it's the Eucharist that kind of connects those other two. It's at the table that the body and blood of, Je- of, of Jesus are offered and are received by the people of God. This is, for Jesus, what the kingdom is about. The temple is an exclusive place. There are these kind of concentric areas of holiness. The very center, God's full presence, the Holy of Holies, only one person gets to go in, and not a lot. It's a man, not a woman, never a woman. You go a little bit further back, and some more people are allowed. The Jewish priests, the Levites. Again, no women are found. No lay people are found. It's too holy. There are actually security guards at the temple to make sure that this is ordered in the correct way. You can't sneak by if you're a a dirty Gentile. This is too serious to them. They're not letting you close to the Holy of Holies. You go a little bit further out from where the Jewish priests are, and now you've got perhaps your faithful kosher Jews, men and women. You go a little bit farther out, and now you have righteous Gentiles. And Jesus looks at all of that and he says, let's take it, let's kick it down, and let's do something family style. Jesus says, instead of these, these exclusion, and instead of these boundaries, instead of these dividers, let's have a table where the prostitutes come and where the tax collectors come and where the good people come and the bad people come, and let's eat and drink with no division. Let's let the table surpass the temple. The kingdom of God is about Stretching our mentalities from a temple mentality to a table mentality. And with the work of Jesus, with his life and death, there's this shift in God's redemptive activity. No longer do we have to go through this hierarchical, ordered system to encounter God. Now we're invited to the table. We, We sang that song, a new one for us before the sermon, The Reckless Love of God. What a great song for this this story. You might say it's kind of reckless to add 150 more gallons of wine to this party. You might say it's kind of reckless to let anybody come to this table. You mean we're not going to check anybody's credentials? That person can be here? There are no assigned seats. This is the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. 
And at the wedding in Cana, after the miracle, we're told that the disciples believed in him. In the Greek, it's literally believed into him. It's a weird way that John likes to use language. The disciples believed into Jesus. There's this personal transference of complete trust from ourselves to Jesus. The disciples had already believed Jesus. I mean, they're following him, and they believe again. It's this, it's this active, daily living thing that, that happens. And so this, this morning, we look at this first sign, this water turned into wine, and we give thanks that today is the day of the feast. We are living in a time where death is being swallowed up. We've seen it swallowed with Jesus. We look forward to it being completely swallowed with Jesus' second coming. And we're invited to come, not to a temple, but to a table. We're invited to come receive the body and blood of Jesus. And in that receiving, be transformed. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for our time this morning. I thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. I thank you for the ability that we have to spend time digging through the narratives of your son. I thank you that now indeed is the time when the wine is flowing and the table is open. I pray that our our eyes and our hearts would be receptive to that. I pray that the way we interact with other people would be indicative of that, that this is the, the day, this is the time, this is the era, this is the age when your wine flows, when your table is open, and so we come and we drink, and we invite others to come and to drink. This morning when we come and we drink and we eat, meet us and transform us. Shape our imaginations. We love you. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.